from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so glad that you have brought us to Friday. God, we're so grateful for this day, this Good Friday. God, we remember exactly what your Word tells us that your Son went through on this day, on this Friday, Father, for our sins. At this point in the day, 1900 years ago, Christ would have been lowered from the cross, already laid in a tomb. Father, the events of the crucifixion is, have occurred. And Father, here on this day, we remember. And we're mindful, Lord God, that we really don't understand. Even though we understand, we still are left without truly understanding the depth of love that you would have for us to send the perfect treasure of heaven so that you could turn us wretched sinners into your prized possession. May we never get over this day. May we shout this day, this Good Friday, this Redemption Day, all the rest of our days. So, Father, as we turn our attention tonight to your Word, as we seek to have a message, Lord, from you, we ask you, O God, teach us from your Word. Fill us until we won't know more. In Jesus' name, amen. It's so good to have everyone here tonight on this Good Friday service. Do you have your Bible tonight? If you wouldn't mind, join me in Mark again. We stepped away from Mark the other night to look at John chapter 13 where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. But tonight we're going to go back to Mark. And I encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 15. And truly I want to tell you and bear my heart before you as your pastor that we could look at the crucifixion, the events of the cross. We could have looked at that this entire week. What we've been doing these past days is we've been looking at what happened on each day. Sunday, of course, was Palm Sunday. Monday was the clearing of the temple. Tuesday was Jesus' teaching. Wednesday was the plot to kill Jesus. And Thursday, of course, was Monday, Thursday. And today is Good Friday. Tomorrow, of course, is what we call Holy Saturday. What happened when Jesus was laid into the tomb? The expectation for the resurrection. We'll be here again tomorrow night to talk about that, and I encourage you to be here for that. And it all comes to a climax on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. So we've been going through Mark's narrative, seeing what Mark has. And so tonight we're coming to Mark chapter 15 and as I was studying this and reading this and going through this, like I said, we could have spent all week just in Mark chapter 15, but tonight we'll have our attention fixed upon the verse 21, and we'll look through verse 32 as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And oh, the crucifixion of Jesus took everyone by surprise, even the disciples by surprise. Even though he had been preparing them, it took them by surprise. Some of you may remember this event in May of 1980. Mount St. Helens in Washington began to quake. The entire surface of the mountain began to change as magma began to build up or bulge. As a once active volcano had in recent years become just normally a tranquil tourist spot. But though there were massive warnings, earthquakes before, and no one was truly ready for the events that happened in May of 1980. And the story goes, as, as the magma pushed against the north side of the mountain, it suddenly and violently burst, removing over 1,300 feet of the mountain summit in one burst. Hot ash and toxic gases were released, and everything within an eight-mile radius was wiped out instantly. The shockwave continued for another 19 miles and leveled the forest around Mount St. Helens. And the scientists tell us that the complete area of devastation was an area of 230 square miles all at once. Tonight in our text, we come to an event that shocked the world. Tonight, we come to an event that though Jesus was marking the days and preparing us, we come to an event that shocked the world. This one singular event that has been building since the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Of, and as a matter of fact, it's been building even before the Gospel of Mark. We understand that this event was building ever since the beginning of time. And it shockwaves... What happened that Good Friday? What we celebrate, those shockwaves that Jesus sent throughout the earth will last until there is no more time. And since the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been warning us all about the coming of the crucifixion. I think it's chapter 3, Jesus is mentioning his death. And Mark is really funny. It really paints the picture of the disciples as just ignorant, not getting it. So Jesus has been preparing them all this time. But suddenly we see Jesus in chapter 15 being delivered to Pilate. And then he's delivered to be crucified. Then we have this section where he is mocked and ridiculed. And then all of a sudden we come to verse 21 and we see him crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus still comes like a tidal wave of hot ash, burning and scorching our souls. What a gruesome and horrific act, a gruesome and horrific death that came to one who spent his entire life fulfilling the purpose plan of God. Yes, and even as Mark tells us, his death, he is fulfilling the reason for his coming. In Mark chapter 10 and 45, it says that the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. So let's read the Bible tonight. And it's so hard for me on this one event to come down on one place to let us look. But tonight, we're going to learn the surprising crucifixion of Jesus. And just see from verse 21 through 32, the way that Mark paints a portrait of so much irony, so many details that totally just take us by shock and take us by surprise. So let's read them together. 
The Bible says in verse 21, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, or about the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. What are the details from the cross tonight. The details of the cross that are ironic, the details of the cross that are entirely surprising. And I want to show you from this text four details that take us by surprise, four truths that Mark wants to teach us from this section of a grander section of the crucifixion of Jesus. Number one, we learn from the cross that Jesus on the cross bears the reproach of the world. Look at what happens in verse 21. Look at what happens. This guy comes from out of nowhere, this guy named Simon of Cyrene down in Africa. This guy. It's no coincidence that a man from Africa carries the cross of Jesus. The nations had gathered for Jerusalem for Passover. All the nations from all over had gathered into one spot. And so here... They will see the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world once and for all, crucified for sinners. They've all gathered. They've come to see lambs slaughtered, pigeons slaughtered, goats slaughtered, beasts slaughtered. But they will get to see the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. As John has already cued us in on this Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. They will get to see Him slaughtered. And in that one slaughtering, all the sacrifices will be over from that point on. It's no coincidence also that Jesus goes outside the city. Think about it. It says they compelled this passerby, just a passerby, someone from the crowd who was just meanly passing by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him outside the city to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. It's no coincidence that we see Jesus going outside the city in The gospel there is a triumphal entry, and now we see a triumphal procession down the Via Della Rosa as he goes to suffer outside the camp. 
You say, what's the big deal with suffering outside the camp? In the Old Testament, the burnt offerings. What is a burnt offering? One who is totally consumed. In the Old Testament, the burnt offerings who were consumed and given to God. Leviticus chapter 16 says that that sacrifice, that burnt offering was to be done outside the camp. All of this paints the portrait of the gospel mission, the gospel mandate, as we see that He is bearing the reproach of the world. Just as Jesus suffered outside the camp, so we too, the Bible says, we too are to leave the love of this world, to leave the love of the world's approval and embrace the reproach of Christ. We endure in this world... We seek to reach this world with the hope and the message of Jesus Christ because we see exactly what Christ did. Listen to what Hebrews says in chapter 13 so that you won't think that I'm just making this up. Hebrews 13 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Now look at what it says next. Therefore, because of He did all of these things, because He is the perfect Lamb, because He is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins, that we are His righteousness, therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. And then listen to this next phrase. For we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, as we see our King going outside the city, so we too are not supposed to be tied down by anything in this world. But How often are we characterized by just the opposite of what our Lord desires us to do? Here He comes in bearing the reproach of the nations, but we'll let somebody else take care of them. We'll simply just give our money to Annie Armstrong or Lottie Moon and think that we've done fine when God has called us to be light right where we are, no matter where you are. Oh, my job, according to Ephesians, is to equip the saints. I pray for this, for this church, and I hope that you realize the potential that you have. Your circle of friends that you've been building for so long and so many years. I'm the new guy in town, just been here for two years. You have such a advantage. Some of you have an advantage over so many because of the place that God has put you. If you have breath in your lungs tonight, God has given you that breath to fulfill His mission, to fulfill His mandate, to do exactly what He did. To be willing to go, to bear the reproach, to be willing to even suffer for those so that they may know hope, so that they may know life. To even be willing to go and to lay down your life if God calls it, because it's His anyway, to lay down your life for the truth. But as Hebrews says that, Hebrews says that we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We are so bombarded with messages 
Make sure that you live your life now. Make sure that you get it all now. Make sure that, and all of those things are good. We do need to save for retirement. I'm not saying all of those things. How many of you, when it's time for you to die, what's the legacy that you're going to leave your family? Are you going to do anything with all of those funds that you've accumulated your entire life to fulfill God's purpose? Are you going to leave it for your family to fight over? We are so guilty of not doing this. We are so guilty of not seeking this city that is to come. We celebrate the passion. We celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate Christ dying on a cross. But do we really get the message of the cross and live it? It's not a spectator thing that we do as if we just simply stand here and look at the cross. No, once we've seen the cross, then we have this outward look and everything, the view of everything else changes because we understand the reason that he died was to save others. We understand the reason that he died was to bear the reproach of the world, to make disciples. And the events in Jerusalem that we see here, the passion, they echo through all the world. I love this. Jesus, think about it, as he's entering Jerusalem in one of the Gospels, Jesus is seen lamenting over the city, over their lack of repentance. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, oh, that I would gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. And here he is lamenting over the city, crying because of their lack of repentance, and he will soon in the narrative from outside the city cry over the city again out to God in desperation, asking why he had been forsaken. As he opens the way, he opens the door for salvation for the same city that he has been lamented over. Where was the gospel first preached? It was Jerusalem. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, be my witnesses. Where first? Jerusalem, the same city that he lamented over, the same city that he was crucified over. And so we have Jesus outside the city. And then we're introduced to two other characters, one by the name of Alexander, the other by the name of Rufus. Rufus, there's a connection that some have said that Rufus may have been one who was mentioned in the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. If you read the end of Romans, you'll see that Paul speaks the name Rufus. And look at the irony here. Here this guy, passerby, Simon of Cyrene. We know his name. We know exactly who he was, where he was from. He was coming in from the country, just a country boy, up from Africa, coming to the big city of Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, we know who else he was. He was the father of Alexander and the father of Rufus. Could it be that these events were so traumatic for Simon that he became a follower of Jesus? Why did Simon become a follower of Jesus? (sighs) Because Simon experienced the cross. Jesus tells us to follow him, doesn't he? Jesus tells us that if any man wishes to come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Die to ourselves daily. Could you just imagine 
how Simon of Cyrene would have interpreted those words? The man who took the Savior's cross and carried it, assisted him to the top of a hill outside the city so that he could carry the sins of God's people away as far as the east is from the west. Jesus came to bear the reproach of the world. And how did he do it? Well, look at verse 22. How did he do it? This reproach of the world, our salvation, it came at a gruesome cost. Look at verse 22, and it's so funny the way, or verse 24, I guess we should say. Look at verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lot for them to decide what each should take. Mark just glosses over it. But at the centerpiece of our salvation is Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, God in the flesh, fixed between two pieces of wood in excruciating pain. Mark, he just simply goes over it. And I think the reason why he goes over it is because that Mark was writing to a Roman audience. He didn't have to explain crucifixion. Crucifixion was known throughout the day. They were, it was known. But we are so far removed from the cross, we need to let these words sink in to understand exactly what happened to Jesus. Crucifixion was the cruelest death imaginable. Cicero, he says this, even, listen to this, even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, their ears. Then he goes on to say, crucifixion is the grossest, cruelest, or most hideous manner of execution. Josephus the Jewish historian, after the Jewish war, which is after the Romans came and decimated the city, Josephus, who wrote about the thousands of crucifixions, the story that Josephus says is the Romans were so angry and hostile to crucify people that they ran out of wood to crucify, and they ran out of places in the city to crucify people. They were so angry at the revolt of the Jews. He described crucifixion as the most wretched of all ways. Of dying. And you could just think with me just for a moment. Here's the God of the universe. Here is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Sovereign. He came during a time where crucifixion was the chosen form of punishment. He came to an empire that would crucify him. Now the Persians started crucifixion, but the Romans perfected crucifixion. You think with me, you think, well, Jesus comes at this point in time. Why couldn't he have come when there would have been like a gas chamber or cyanide pill or something? But the Bible says that he came in the fullness of time to fulfill the righteousness of God. Even our English word excruciating carries the weight of the cross. It's two words put together. Ex means out of and Cruci, which means cross. Jesus was scourged 
And He hung on a cross to die by exhaustion in public display of all. Why did He do it? Why such a gruesome death? Here's the reason. To show us how God views sin. To show us how hideous, to show us how ugly sin has made us. Jesus was marred beyond all recognition because of sin. And our sin mars our humanity beyond all that is recognizable. You think about it, even the purest form of love that we have can be perverted by idolatry can be perverted by self-interest. The Bible says that any good that we have is no good at all to achieve what God desires of us. And this is exactly why He sent the Son. So that through His shame and through His reproach, we could be brought close to God. But look at the way he suffers. Look at this. I love this. Verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, what is that? That was this ointment that was supposed to dull the pain. Something that was supposed to take the edge off of the pain. But Jesus refuses even to have the edge of his crucifixion. The edge of the cost of our sins upon his shoulders taken off. He suffers totally, not even wishing to take the elixir to take the edge off of the pain. And so they're gathered around the cross. We have this idea of these soldiers coming and casting lots and all of these things. As we see this constant threat of asking Jesus to save himself, to save himself. And there Mark wants to teach us another truth, another mark of great irony. And if he would have saved himself, he would not have been able to save us. So through not saving himself, he saves others. Jesus has suffered total shame. Not even his garments, not even the clothes that he came in on and was arrested in not even his garments are safe from the hands of those torturous. And in fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two eighteen, they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots for. What does this tell us? Again, Jesus was totally giving of himself. And look, they affixed something the charge for which he died above his cross. They, they put this sign above his cross and the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And that was exactly the truth. The reason that he died is because he was the king of the Jews. But what was this charge? The reason for his crucifixion, the charge was treason against Rome. The Bible says that they put him between two robbers, two other insurrectionists. You say, wait a minute, insurrectionists? What do you mean, insurrectionists? These are robbers. Well, that Greek word that's there is, also carries the idea of an insurrectionist. And the reason I think that these two were indeed insurrectionists, they may have been robbers and sleaze, sleazy guys for sure. 
sinners just like you and I. But I believe they were insurrectionists. And here's the reason that I believe that. Do you remember whose cross Jesus took? Remember Barabbas in chapter 15 and verse 7 when the crowd goes and they ask for this one who had committed murder in the insurrection. There was a man called Barabbas and they asked for Barabbas. They asked for Barabbas. The Bible says here, the Bible says in another place that Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. He was in the middle. Why? And His cross was elevated. You say, how do you know it was elevated? Because of the stick that they used to get the myrrh to Him in another account and because of the chief priest beriding Him, from the, assaulting Him from the ground. He was higher than the rest of them, elevated to show that He was the chief insurrectionist. And so he is. As Joshua was walking around Jericho to take the city, if you remember in the Old Testament, walking around and on that seventh day he blew the trumpets and the walls came a-tumbling down. As he was walking and fixing to take the city, he was met by the angel of the Lord. And Joshua asked him, Are you for us or are you for them? And the angel of the Lord says, neither one. In other words, the angel of the Lord says, I'm not to pick sides. I'm here to take over completely. That's exactly what Jesus did through the cross. Surprisingly, this king of the Jews who looks helpless as he is tied and nailed to an old rugged cross, he looks helpless, but he is doing exactly that. He is taking over. Sin's domain over us. Look at the charge. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down for the cross. The temple, through Jesus' body being destroyed, He will open up a new way of worship. Look at what happens in verse 38 of our narrative. After He was crucified, when He uttered a loud cry and He breathed His last, what happens to the temple? The curtain of the temple, which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest, was torn from top to bottom. And so they say, establish this temple that you said, destroy the temple. That's exactly what Jesus does. He opens up a new way of worship. And look especially at the irony of verse 31. The chief priest describes these group that we've been looking at all week who've had it out for Jesus, they finally look like they've got Him. Here He is nailed to a cross and they say, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. But it was through not saving Himself, but through undergoing the shame, the agony, the reproach, the penalty, the wrath of God that He would do exactly what they said. He cannot save Himself though He saved others. You see, if He does not do this, if He comes down off of the cross prematurely, if what Peter wants to happen happens when Peter says, you'll never be crucified, and Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. If that happens, and if He doesn't do this, then there's no salvation. And that salvation is available even to those who crucify Him. Look at verse 39. 
The centurion who stood facing him saw it in this way. He breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. If Jesus doesn't undergo the cross, if he doesn't undergo the penalty of of our sin, then there is no salvation, a salvation that is even available to the very ones that crucified him. But then look at what the chief priests say again. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, in verse 32, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They wanted a sign. Jews, according to Paul, they seek a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach to you the message of the cross. The wisdom, the strength, the power of God. But they say something so truthful here. If the cross is the final word, if we just have Friday and we don't have Sunday, then there's no reason for us to be here to celebrate. To celebrate a death? To come to a funeral service every, every Friday once a year to commemorate that death? No, because the cross is not the final word. That's the reason that we believe. Remember this. You cannot believe except through the cross. The Pharisees have been seeking a sign since the beginning. They are being sarcastic here. But again, the speech, the irony is so heavy. Like I said, Good Friday is only good because Sunday is coming. As Paul said, if, if there's no resurrection, then of all the men, of all the religions, of all the groups, Paul said, if there is no resurrection, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul puts it in this way, this Pharisee who was ready and zealous to keep the law. He said, if there is no resurrection, then let's just all eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's it. But the cross is not the final word. God's plan was not to deliver him from the cross, listen carefully, but was to deliver us through the cross. God's plan was not to deliver him from the cross, but to deliver us through the cross. And it's by his stripes, by his wounds, We are healed. The cross was Jesus' purchase of our salvation. And in rising from the dead, He gives us a reason to believe. In rising from the dead, Jesus gives us hope. And He makes the salvation that was bought at the cross available to all who would come to Him in faith and believe. And so this Friday that we celebrate, is this Good Friday for you? Have you truly been marked, not just this day, because maybe you had fish today, or whatever the case may be, or you came to a worship service, but when you first realize the implications of Good Friday, once you memorize that day, has every day since then been a Good Friday for you? Have you been seeking to live in the power of the cross? Or is this simply ritualistic? Going through the motions. You see, Christ teaches us what it means to worship. 
And he teaches us in his total giving of himself and through his willingness, his willingness. He said, no man takes my life. I give it of my own accord. He does this through his willingness to undergo the wrath of God for us. Also, he could redeem us. And I tell you why, beloved. The reason why this Friday is good Friday, because this is Redemption Friday. It was the day when redemption was made available to us. And how did that redemption come? It came through the spotless Lamb of God who was crucified on a cross. And even realistically, if you can remember, a preview of tomorrow night and a preview of Sunday, this totally took everyone by surprise, even the ones closest to him. The funny truth is, if you think it's still taking the entire world by surprise, you mean to tell me that something that happened 2,000 years ago still affects me today? You mean to tell me that Jesus died for my sins once and for all and there's nothing that I can do to add to my salvation? There's nothing that I can do to take away from my salvation? What does that have to do with me? The cross still surprises the world because the cross is still the wisdom and the mighty display of God. And listen closely to me. He did it. Because he loved you. He did it. Because he wanted you. To enjoy the reason for your creation. To enjoy the opportunity. For you to worship him. To obey him. To know what it means to live. Through his death. And by his life. We live. Father in heaven, we love you, and we praise you. We know, Lord God, that the cross of Jesus Christ still is so surprising to us. This is the reason why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, to be mindful of the fact that our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. And Lord, we love you. And I just wonder if there's anyone here who doesn't know you. If there's one here who they know, they know that the cross of Christ has really not touched their life. To them, it's just something cold and callous that they just look at and observe instead of live every day. Father, I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would grab hold of them, convict them, unsettle them, unnerve them, 
so that they can surrender to you and be saved. Father, we love you and we praise you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.